Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Well, today's episode of The Gate, we have an invited guest, Lee Wonders. And Lee is the national sales manager for Dosatron International, based in Clearwater, Florida. Lee, welcome aboard. And I'm going to ask you to give us a little bit of your background. As I understand it, you at one point were a small slash medium-sized grower before you got involved with fertilizer injectors. So welcome to the podcast and tell us a little bit more about your your path, your story. Well, thank you, Peter, and thank you, for, Michelle, for inviting me to do this podcast. I definitely uh, really thank you for the opportunity. So, as you said, I'm the National Sales Manager for Dostron International for the irrigation market, which deals with nurseries, greenhouses, hydroponics, vegetable production, almost anything that has to do with uh, growing plants. I was a grower in the past. Um, I started off right out of high school in a family-owned small wholesale nursery, and uh, we serviced the um, independent garden center market. Uh, We did not sell into chain stores. It was uh, just independence. And uh, we've seen that market change over the years uh, quite drastically. And since then, I have uh, moved to run some other farms and currently am at Dosatron. I've been at Dosatron a little over five years now. And uh, we really enjoy helping small to medium-sized growers with their process of growing and their process of helping their operations out by making things easier for them. And we try to look at things in a way of not as much, I would say, as uh, just trying to sell them a product, but try to make their growing experience better and make them more profitable. You and I have had a lot of fun over this past year bringing some of the supply side companies into our conversation, into the podcast. And haven't we succeeded in finding small family businesses and and smaller operations or operations focused on small growers. It's been fun to find those types of suppliers, hasn't it? It has. And I think it's interesting how several have background in farming, especially small operations like Lee mentioned. Yes. Lee, as, as my final introductory comment, I want to caution our, our listeners that even though it's Dosatron International, which implies big, the flavor, the perspective that you guys bring to our industry is absolutely for a small grower application. You guys are always welcoming Leela and Eddie Kelly, owners of Dosatron. Leela and I have been on board of boards of directors together and served on committees together. I think the world of her. And there's nothing like being with Leela in a grower's greenhouse and having her disassemble a dosatron injector in front of the grower to show him or her how to change seals and to service the injector. I'm, I'm sure you, you can confirm that 
that's that's the tone that's set for Dosatron from the top down. So I'm going to jump in real quick. And Lee, can you explain what Dosatron does? Because I'm assuming most of our listeners are not aware. So before we get too far down the rabbit hole, what is it that we're talking about? Okay, Michelle. Yes. Yeah, so we basically sell fertilizer or what we call chemical injection pumps. But what we do is Dosatron invented the water-powered injector technology that we use. So basically, we have a pump that is powered by the water going through the pump, and it pulls up whatever product, whether it's a fertilizer or a sanitation product or some other type of chemistry, and injects it into the water stream. So by doing that, we can automate the fertilization and chemical application process either through an irrigation system or through somebody hand-watering plants uh, with a water wand or however they need something mixed. And basically, we automate that mixing process and we make it easier for the grower or even uh, the retail uh, garden center. Uh, if they're watering plants that they have in and they want to add some fertilizer to them to keep them green, keep them looking good, to extend the shelf life, we automate that process and we do it economically also. So, Michelle, what what we're talking about here with a fertilizer injector or, or an injector in general is a device that the best way I can describe this is if we put our home home gardener cap on and we're mixing fertilizer, let's say a powdered fertilizer using a watering can, and, you know, you might put a tablespoon into a watering can, go water part of the garden, walk back to the faucet, put another tablespoon in, mix it. So you're going back and forth, back and forth, however big your garden is. So the fertilizer injector eliminates all that. And, and what we end up doing is making a, a very concentrated stock solution. And the fertilizer injector will suck a little bit of that concentrate and mix it into the water stream as it's flowing through the hose. So for a grower, and when I was in grade school in the early 60s, before injectors were on the scene, Lee, I can remember my father and mother mixing in a 50-gallon drum the liquid fertilizer and then pumping directly from that drum to the crop. And when you were done the 50 gallons, you'd mix another 50 gallons. So, so I'm sure you, you, you have stories on that. When, when the first injector came out and we didn't have to keep mixing and pumping and, you know, it, it was like a godsend. It, it was, life was so much easier. What's your basic story of, of an injector for someone like Michelle, who's an economist and not as necessarily a grower? Yeah, that makes, uh, you know, when you think about the amount of time it takes to mix product in some type of reservoir or a barrel or a bucket and do that transfer, when you're an independent nursery person or something, and this is something I think on the economic side that a lot of people don't realize, sometimes people don't value their time and they say, well, I'm doing it myself. 
But if you put that whole perspective into if you were paying an employee to do that process, all of a sudden you start putting a dollar value to that that you're paying somebody to be mixing fertilizer and then applying that fertilizer to a crop. When you can automate that process, you save that time and you save that labor money, even if it's just your own time and you're not valuing your own time. But as an economic standpoint, there's always something else to be done in the nursery. It's never ending. There's always something more to do. So the more you can free that time up, the more productive you can be. And that's what we really try to look at when we're helping, especially the smaller growers, is to how can we free your time up? How can we make you more productive? How can we make your life easier? My dad was a real good example of this. Years ago, we had some processes in our nursery, and of course, you know, I've trying to say, hey, dad, we need to do things different. We need to automate this process. And he's going, yeah, but, you know, it's it's my time. And, you know, I'm not paying myself by the hour. And it's like, yes, but wouldn't you rather be doing something else? So that's the process I think I look at behind this is try to find where time is being used and labor money is being used and figure out how to make that more productive and more profitable for the grower. And, and Lee, we have the luxury of having Michelle as, as an economist on, on with us today. And Michelle, you and I have spent time on episodes talking about cost analyses and whatnot. And what Lee is just describing is something that we've covered about Grow, small growers not taking account or uh, of their time and whether they're taking a salary or not. You have comments on that. I do, and I mean, we do. Ta- we have talked about this several times, and just how important it is for people to value their time as just part of being a sustainable operation. If you're burnt out, you're not going to be as good of a manager. And since our last conversation, I actually did a deep dive into cost of production for dairy. And I'm not going to go into the dairy, but I do think it's interesting that the USDA, when they put together these analyses, always make a point to count what your labor would be worth off the farm and what your land would be worth if you were selling the grain instead of using it in your own operation. And so, In order to get a true cost of accounting, the USDA is looking at these opportunity costs. And I think those are two ways that maybe our listeners could think about is, you know, what else could you be doing? If you weren't mixing that, what could you be getting paid to do? So maybe that will help explain it. But I absolutely agree with everything that's being said. Good, good. Lee, so... My very first, uh, when we shifted over in the 60s, we were getting closer to 1970 or so when my dad found his first fertilizer injector. And in a moment, you and I are going to talk a a little bit about that that most common injection ratio of 1 to 100. So we'll, we'll talk about that in 30 seconds. It took me years to figure out who came up with this this ratio that my dad's first injector had? It was one to 128. And it took me years 
to f- scratch my head and figure out, oh, okay, somebody designed this so that you you could relate one ounce to 128 ounces in a gallon. So that was my first experience with a fertilizer injector and, and an awkward, cumbersome ratio of one to 128. So now when we deal with a daily injection ratio, most common is one to 100. Would you explain that to our listeners and tell us a little bit about how they use that, how, how you guys educate growers to, to work around that ratio, please? Uh, sure. So the 1 to 128 ratio, which is basically means, you know, 1 to 128 ounces or 1 ounce per gallon, was pretty much, you know, came from the products that we were using and how they were manufactured. The chemical companies, and and when I say chemical, I'm using that as a term of any type of product we're putting in because it could be an organic product and not a chemical per se. But the manufacturers made things to mix it an ounce per gallon. So we had the 1 to 128. Well, as injector technology uh, came to play, it was a lot easier to do the math at 1 to 100. So the fertilizer companies and other companies realized this, and they developed their products to be more user-friendly. So when we talk about 1 to 100, what it means is for every 100 ounces that goes through the injector, it will pick one ounce out of the stock solution. Or if we're going in gallons, for every 100 gallons that goes through the injector, it will pull one gallon of stock solution. So the technology with the fertilizer companies and the chemical companies and the people that make these products have realized that they can make the math easier. It's just a lot easier to do the math at 1 to 100 And even sometimes, you know, we can go 1 to 200, depending on the solubility of the product. A lot of our water-soluble fertilizers have a maximum solubility, and that means it's a maximum amount we can mix in a bucket, and it stays diluted in solution. Once you get past that point, you just can't get any more of it to stay in solution. And that's usually at a ratio of about 1 to 200 with most commercial fertilizers. But the nursery person can use these ratios based on their usage. If they know how much water they're going to use, they can figure out how much of a stock solution they need to make up. So if they know it's 1 to 100 and they know that they're going to be watering an area and probably go through, you know, a couple hundred gallons of water in that watering, they know they're going to need two gallons of solution to do that job. This does take some experience on the grower's part to kind of realize how much product and how much water they're really using. But once they use it, they they get a hang of it. And they can kind of figure out, you know, how much product they need to mix and how much will actually be used on that application. Yes, that one to 100 has turned out to be a a very easy, as you say, for doing the math, Lee. And in my earlier days teaching greenhouse management at at an undergraduate level, going through injectors and giving students a few simple calculations to, to command and 
learn how to do with their eyes closed, so to speak, when they, when they're finally out in a commercial greenhouse. You know, one to one hundred is it's the law. It it works for most of us as small growers. And then Michelle, as Lee is describing, let's say I as a small grower through most of the year, one to one hundred is working for me, and you know I might have a thirty gallon stock solution and. And at a one to 100 rate, you know, it might last two or three weeks. But then I get to this time of year in the spring crunch and I'm watering a lot more. I'm applying more fertilizer. And if I'm not careful, I end up having to mix the stock solution too frequently, almost like the analogy of going back and mixing in the watering can that I put out there a few minutes ago. So if, if I have an injector that has a variable ratio, and many of Dosatron's injectors do have this vari- variable injection ratio, I can just adjust that from 1 to 100 to perhaps 1 to 200 during this spring crunch, double the concentration of my stock solution, as Lee said, depending on what the solubility of the fertilizer is, and then each stock barrel that I mix lasts twice as long. So you can see that where that analogy comes into play. But for most of the year, most of the time, the one to 100 ratio is, is what we work with. Lee, some of my research is on sanitation products injecting into irrigation lines. And for some of these products, we're looking at ratios lower than one to 100 lower or higher, depending on what, what our semantics is telling us. But but we need to go down to perhaps 1 to 50 to get enough of a sanitizing chemistry into a water line to kill algae and biofilm, et cetera. Is, are there other instances where you might see a grower use a ratio uh, lower than 1 to 100, 1 to 75, or 1 to 50? Yes, most definitely. We see this quite often. And one thing while we're kind of talking about ratios, and this is very confusing when people uh, start talking about ratios, the smaller the number, the more product we're putting in. So a lot of times people don't realize that they go the opposite way on the adjustment. When we talk about a ratio of one to 50, we're adding one part to 50 parts. So we're adding twice as much as we would as if we were at one to 100. So this confuses people at times, and we answer this question all the time, whether you know they, they go the other way and they, and they don't realize the higher the number in the ratio, the smaller amount of product we put in. But where we see really higher ratios, one to 50, even one to 20, even one to 10, is especially with organic products. We have a lot of people that use compost teas or they use a full organic liquid type fertilizer that's usually very low in nitrogen. It could be down around, you know, 3% or so. And for those products, we have to add a lot more of it to get the effect for the plant. If we were using, say, a 20-10-20 and we're at 20% nitrogen in that product, we need a lot less of that product to feed that plant. But if we're using something that's, say, a 3 or 4% nitrogen, we've got to really up the amount we put in there. So we may be running an injector at 1 to 50, or some of our models 
you know, their highest ratio goes to one to 50, but we have other models that we have injection ratios all the way at one to 10. So we can actually add 10% of the product to that. This gets very important when the grower decides to buy an injector is to know the products they want to use and how much of those products they want to inject to select the right model. And we do this all the time. We answer these questions every day for the growers. They can call us, they can email us, they can get on our website, and we're happy to help them to make sure that they buy the right injector with the right injection ratios to meet their needs. And that's exactly why I wanted to have this conversation with you. And and thank you. Those are excellent points, Lee, to help describe the versatility of the injector and and the the, uh, versatility of a variable ratio or adjustable ratio. Let's kind of segue and and use that word versatility. Talk to us a little bit about the versatility of water-powered injectors compared to other products, other injectors from other manufacturers that require electricity, they're, they're more, they're fancier, they're high powered, but talk to us about Dosatron's focus on, on the water powered unit and the flexibility versatility it brings. So with the Dosatron injector being water powered, it adds a lot of versatility in the installation. Without having to have electricity to power the injector, you know, it can be installed in multiple places within a greenhouse or a facility or a nursery without having to have power there. And, and you know, as most growers know, you know, in a greenhouse, you might have power at one end of the greenhouse to run fans or other things, but there's not usually power outlets all over the greenhouse. And the same with uh, whether it's a garden center, retail nursery, or, you know, outdoor nursery, power sometimes can be limited as to where you have electricity. The other thing with it being water powered is it's self-adjusting based on flow. So with the water going through the injector, it controls the speed that the injector is injecting product. So if your water flow increases or decreases, the amount of product you're putting in stays constant to what it's supposed to be mixed at. You don't have spikes of more product if the water flow drops or less product if the water flow increases. The injector automatically compensates for that. The other thing with being water-powered and some of our smaller units, and a lot of people use them on carts, especially for hand-watering operations. And uh, they can roll the carts around that has uh, the fertilizer stock solution on it and hook a garden hose into it and a garden hose out, and they can move it around the operation. This is really good for especially retail uh, garden centers especially in places where they open up in the springtime and they run through the summer and shut down through the fall. They might be in the, you know, in a parking lot of a a business or something like this where they don't even have permanent installations. But this gives us a lot of versatility in agriculture as a whole as to where we can install the injector 
you know, and how it's used. We do under our dilutions solutions company sell electric powered injectors too, and they have their fit depending on the application. And that's another thing too that we really like it when customers call us and tell us about their application where we can help them determine what is the best product for them and what's the best fit. Because at the end of the day, it's really not about what the injector is, whether it's electric powered, water powered, or even where it's installed. It's about having the right piece of equipment to do the job properly and how to mix the products properly and apply the products properly. And if we can do that accurately, that helps the grower. Well said. That brings back memories from my commercial days, Lee, where in our 55,000 square foot greenhouse range, retail garden center, you know, all, all blended into one operation. We did have a central injector that was electrically powered with pH and EC monitoring. That was central and went throughout the range. But as important as that central injector was, it was my half dozen portable dosatron units that were as important so that if I had a heavy feeding crop, such as petunia in one greenhouse, I could bump up the fertilizer rate from the central injector by taking a portable dosatron to that house and and just uh, jumping on top of what the central injector injected. And likewise, if, if I had a house where I needed a different fertilizer, I would simply bypass the central injection and use the portable dosatron. And you have a nice cart with wheels that the dosatron mounts to. I've had times where I've just taken a unit and a five-gallon bucket and gone from house to house with whatever material in the concentrate tank in that five-gallon bucket I needed to apply. So the versatility is, uh, wow, it's such a selling feature for for what you guys are doing, and the equipment is uh, is wonderful. Now I want to shift on after talking about how good the equipment is. Can I uh, jump in with a question? Please. I was just wondering, as electrification of farms or clean energy on farms or carbon harvesting or sequestration, all of that conversation about how agriculture is going to play a role. I was wondering if the water pump is, if that conversation has come up a lot since you are using water instead of electricity to power this pump. But it's okay if the answer is no. We don't really get a lot of, uh, I guess, questions as far as like carbon footprint in that type of questions. But we do run into a lot of situations where people don't just don't have availability of electricity. They might have a diesel pump or it could be even some type of a gravity feed type system. And they, they just don't have power. And they've got to have some way to inject and the, and the water power works really well there. But I don't think we've really run into a lot of it as far as what you would say uh, for carbon footprint or, or anything like that. Uh, no. Michelle, I like how you're thinking, however, and that might it could be a marketing tool Lee, for, for you guys to be able to say at some point, no power required. Anyway, OK, that was that was cool. 
Lee, let's let's now shift. You've been a commercial grower as I have. You're now on sales side. You're an educator. Talk to us about, give me two of the most common mistakes you see growers making with regard to their injectors. Ones that I see quite often are, is improper mixing of their stock tank. Growers have to really be cognizant of what they're mixing and how much they're mixing. This is something that can turn into a total disaster if you tell somebody, you know, to mix a stock tank with a certain amount of product in there and and they don't mix that stock tank correctly. That can either be if they put too much product in, you know, they could actually burn the crop by over-fertilization. If they don't put enough in, they lose growing time, which costs money also. But that's probably one of the largest things. I normally don't see that when it's the owner operator of the operation, because normally the owner is going to do things right. It's normally when that job is handed down to an employee. And that, that costs money when you either overmix or undermix, because you can either have crop losses or you can have a slowdown in production. Some of the other things we see too that is um, lack of filtration. Filtration is key to anybody's fertilizer injector, whether it's a Dosatron or another brand. If you're pumping really crappy water that has solids and grit and stuff like that through that, it's going to affect that injector. It's going to make it prematurely wear. It's going to make it malfunction. Filtration is one of these things that most nurseries seem to do a, a pretty good job of, but some don't. And some have these water sources where they're pulling out of ponds or reservoirs or rivers and, you know, filtration costs money. So they don't really spend a lot of money on the filtration and uh, that water quality turns into a real issue. So uh, water quality in growing is something I think that is often overlooked especially in, I want to say, lower value crops. And when I say lower value crops, I'm talking about lower valued ornamentals or lower valued vegetables. Your higher value crops, people seem to take pay a little bit more attention to all the details and water quality is one of them. But I think every grower could definitely benefit by watching their water quality to begin with. Thank you for your time and spending your uh, your time and sharing your expertise with us. A couple of comments I'm interested or we're interested in hearing from you. As we enter a post-COVID period, what are some observations that you might share with us regarding our industry, the horticulture industry, be it field crops, greenhouse, indoor ag, a uh, couple of observations you might share with us as we come out of the pandemic and things you're seeing for our industry's health and future. Well, it's definitely been an interesting year. When COVID first hit as a company, we prepared for the end of the world. You know, we had no idea what was going to happen. 
we normally as a company, our reps usually travel quite a bit. You know, I actively travel a little bit over half of the United States and was used to being on an airplane every other week. That all came to a grinding halt. We had to figure out a different way to do things. As you know, our trade shows in 2020 were canceled or done virtually. We had never had experience with doing virtual trade shows or doing as many meetings and stuff as we do now virtually. We took the precaution of moving our employees out of the office, working from home to minimize exposure to COVID. We have since then even converted a lot of that office space to other usable space within our company. So a lot of our customer service, our accounting, those people are now working from home full time. They're not even coming into the office and and we've done very well. 2020 was actually a good year for us, but it was also a good year for horticulture. Almost every horticulture business that I talked to had a really good year. And it was because people stayed home and they bought plants and they bought vegetable plants and they upgraded their landscape. So it was a good year for horticulture. I hope that continues. And I'm hoping maybe that, you know, the American public can see the value in the nursery industry and in horticulture in general as uh, growing food or growing their own plants and enjoying, you know, horticulture more. And hopefully that keeps driving our industry forward. We're also seeing emerging industries uh, such as hemp and cannabis with legalization coming across the country. And we're uh, marketing, you know, heavily into those markets and we uh, do a lot of business in those markets. So we're seeing a lot of promise. It's been a learning curve just for everybody doing things totally different than we've done. And I think people have learned to be more efficient even. They've learned that, you know, I don't necessarily need to hop in the car and, and, and drive somewhere. I can figure out another way to get this done. And I think people are looking at ways to be more efficient in their life and in their business. And if that's automating a process, they're standing back and taking a look at that. It's sad to say that we have a horrible pandemic that maybe did some good things for us, but hopefully there is some good things that have come out of our learning from this, and hopefully this pandemic will be over soon and we can get back to our normal lives. But I don't think we're ever going to see, I think our lives are permanently changed from the uh, ways that we've had to learn to change to do things through this pandemic. Well said. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that perspective, Lee. That a recurring question that I have been asking Michelle from from her perch as an economist is, okay, we were pleasantly surprised that the horticulture industry did better than expected, and in some areas had banner years last year. And my my question that Michelle keeps trying to address for me is how much of the gains during the pandemic can be turned into permanent gains in terms of, okay, once the pandemic ends, are these small growers going to give back some of the business that they gained? And Michelle, isn't it's interesting to hear any of our guests kind of touch on this whole thing about how, how it was a pleasant surprise that business was a little better than usual, 
And we always couch this, Lee, in way too many people lost their lives during this. So, so we don't want to lose sight of the seriousness of it and just talk about how businesses did better. But putting everything in perspective, Michelle, haven't we been talking about how growers can maybe hold on to some of these gains? We have. And I think that Lee did address this point that we are seeing changes. We did experience changes in our lives in different ways of doing things and buying things and different priorities on our health and nutrition and the environment. And so I think all of these trends had started before the pandemic and were just exacerbated. And so now the question is, we know the people are going to go back to their busy lives and have less time to garden, but maybe they'll have more than they used to. So I think a lot like Lee, that there's going to be new hobbies and a new normal and a new way of doing things, but they are going to be heavily influenced by the changes that we went through last year. Well, Lee, I want to give you an opportunity to make a final comment. And in advance of that, thank you again for taking time out of your busy day to share your expertise with us. Is there a closing comment or two that you'd like to make? Sure. I really want to thank both of you for having me on this podcast. I've really enjoyed it. And and I want the listeners to know, too, that uh, Dosatron is a company, and, and this is something that I know... <laughs> If you've traveled with Leela and stuff, uh, we're, we're passionate about the growers. We enjoy the growers. We enjoy what we do, and we enjoy seeing the growers being successful. And if you ever travel with me or Leela, you know, if I help a grower out, a lot of times it's not just with uh, Dosatron equipment. If there's other things that we can help with, that we've experienced from being growers ourselves. If we can help that grower, you know, improve their operation, improve the way they're doing things, improve their profitability, we're happy to do that. And and that's because we're passionate about it. I mean, you know, we like the horticulture industry. You know, it's an industry that once you're in it and you enjoy the industry, I think it's um, something that only people that are in the industry really understand, but um, they're very passionate about it and they're passionate about helping other growers. It's a very friendly industry. It's an industry where people share their ideas, they share other experiences and, and they help each other. Even if it's a competitor, they help each other. It's, it's not like other industries where people don't get along. And I just want everybody to know that, that we're here to help. And, and we're passionate about the growers and we want to see the growers be successful in however we can help them. Well, that's a, a very fitting ending to the conversation. And thank you again for joining us today.